So obviously want to dig into the tour and talk about the future and get your opinion looking in the past in the rearview mirror on a couple things. But uh, first and foremost, health and how is everyone doing out there on the road? You know, we actually had to take a break, like take a week off because people were people got sick. It kind of felt like dominoes. First, Miley got it, our drummer, and then he got he got stuck in Austin, Texas. And we moved on and left him there. And my guitar tech actually ended up filling in for some shows. My guitar tech is a drummer and um, stepped forward and went, oh, I can fill in. I've been watching for years. I watch him and I know what what he's doing. Really? No, you can't. So then we had a soundtrack with him and he did. He could do it. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So obviously it's a little different, but um, he did a really unbelievable job for I mean, he just jumped right into the fire. Literally, it happened. We were uh, testing before Austin, before the show, and our drummer came up positive, and that quickly, he just jumped in. We just took a sound check and ran the set with him, and wow. So anyway, uh, that happened, and then um, we moved on and did, did some shows and spent a few days in a hotel in Shreveport, and during that little stay, uh, Jay got sick or had already contracted it and tested positive by, by this point. So that to us was basically the end of the tour. I decided, uh, I'm just, I gotta go home. I, I have family and stuff. I gotta go take care of them until we figure out what we're going to do. So I'm home right now, but, um, we were able to salvage everything as you know, or might not may or not know. We're going to actually do the tour. And the day after we got home, Dave got sick. Our bass player got, <laughs> Oh man. It's just falling like dominoes. I tell you. So I just found out also on this day that our keyboard player got it. I mean, we're on a bus, so it's it's pretty tough to catch it, you know? You got to be really nervous at this point then. Everybody's vaccinated, but um, I've already had it, so I feel great. Ah. I feel fine. I'm still nervous. But yeah, through all of this, we've been able to salvage dates and move things around and still try to make it all make sense so we can actually stay out. And we're going to pick it back up. And I will fly out next week. And I think we start in Pittsburgh and then Detroit and moving like this, ending here in California. Yeah, well, I'm super glad that you get to end at home in front of the hometown area crowd. We got you November 12th at the Wiltern and then the very next night, November 13th, House of Blues at Anaheim. And I bet that's a real yin-yang. I bet the Wiltern show is kind of like the industry, a little bit stuffy. And then the, the 13th, the House of Blues kind of being really the hometown show and letting your hair down, so to speak. Well, for me, I mean, for all of us, yeah, it, it's close to home. So it does feel like that. But honestly, when you're traveling all over the world or even all over just the United States, and we'll go into Canada on this run, even coming home to L.A., it feels like home. A lot of family comes out. A lot of friends come out. So I don't know. I try not to make any of the shows stuffy. No stuffy <laughs> shows. All good shows. Uh, <laughs> um, Wilton's a great room. And the House of Blues, man, it's been years since we played that room. It's been a long time, so it should be really Really great. I wanted to mention, I just found out there's there's only a handful of tickets left for that House of Blues show. I think maybe 50 or less tickets. Was anybody listening? Yeah. Snap them up. Yeah, we're going to get them sold for you. I was going to say, have you played the new House of Blues of Anaheim? I, even the old one, it's been so long. But where is this one even at? Yeah, so the old one was downtown Disney, and now this one is on the other side of Harbor. It's over by the Garden uh... Walk. Ah, uh, you know what? I'm going to be honest. 
hearing this for the first time. (laughs) (laughs) I actually was asking at the top of the tour, I was asking friends, like, is it still downtown Disney? I heard they were shutting that down. And everybody said, no, I think it's still there. But you're letting me know it is not that place. It is on Harbor now. Yeah. If you go to the downtown Disney, it's a bowling alley. Whoa. Yeah. It's, okay. Yeah, it's completely different. It's like six mini bowling alleys that you can rent and reserve and have parties or whatever. So yeah, you want to go across the street to the Garden Walk. There's a bunch of restaurants off of well, yeah Harbor on the, basically on the other side of the street. Killer venue, state of the art. It's been open three four years now. And a good segue into the tour. And I, I was curious. Obviously, we're looking back on pressure and time. Tenth anniversary. You know, in in going back, I'm sure before you headed out for the tour, you were doing your homework, so to speak, and, and looking back, and I'm sure there were some songs and stuff that you had maybe kind of forgot about, and going back and doing your research, was there any moment where you were like, wow, not bad, dude, because I'm sure over 10 years, you've forgotten some of that stuff. Do you look back and go, <laughs> if you had to put it on a scale of justice, you know, you can't go 50-50, were you more impressed on looking back on what you had done, or depressed, going, dude, what were you thinking? <laughs> dude, it was like that. Because we've been making a record almost every year, you know, so we have seven records out now. And that one, we moved right through it, right onto the next one. I think literally came off that Pressure and Time tour back then in 2012, right into the studio, drove our van right into to Nashville, made our next record with Dave Cobb. And I think we might have even finished the record and went back on the road. It was it's been psychotic like that. So it's hard to focus in on each record. As soon as you move on, you move on. So to your question, I was definitely more, um, sounds terrible. Like it sounds like I'm patting myself on the back. I was more impressed. I like the record. I think the record came out really good and I had forgotten how a lot of the things we had done on it, but I think the record is, um, we really felt like it was a really solid concentrated effort. Like we knew what we were trying to do and we had all done bigger, more elaborate kind of music and projects and records. And, um, this one we really wanted it to be how do you put it i I, we wanted it to be bite-sized like where people could really digest the whole thing you know so i wasn't trying to do any 10-minute guitar solos (laughs) we weren't trying to make like like these big long songs you know much more um like british invasion 60s style three-minute songs this isn't like um the wall you know what I mean? So it's a record you could really just listen to the thing top to bottom. And I believe the whole thing is around 30, 35 minutes, top to bottom. And there's a statement. And it's so concise, you can actually kind of like feel it and like hear what's happening on there musically, you know? Well, I've always loved the record. It always felt like a record that needed to play, be played live. Like The Wall, like you had mentioned, that's a very technical, very sonic sounding album where Pressure and Time sounded like four dudes jamming it out in a garage. It sounded like that on, on the record, so it made sense for it to be played live. And I imagine you're playing it in sequence, right? We are. We are. The only difference is, I don't know if I'm giving away a secret, I don't think it really matters, but... A lot of nights we'll play the B-sides in, which is kind of funny. Funny story is that we made this record with so much intent that when we finished it, it is the normal writing order that you hear. That's how the record goes. That's what we're releasing. We didn't record any other songs at all. Every song we worked on went on the record. That's kind of rare for bands. Usually have like some runoff, you know? I had these like three songs, they just didn't make it. But when we turned it in, the label said, oh yeah, well, we need bonus tracks. We need B-sides. And we're like, there is no B-sides. They're all A-sides. They're all like whatever. You know, They're all album tracks. So we need these B-sides for, for Japan and 
for Germany and there's these territories that they just won't play ball if we don't have B-sides. So we literally had to book studio time to go back in and make B-sides. So um, the set list, sometimes we'll throw those B-sides into the set. I don't even know if you know those, the company man and oh, yeah. left of the road. Yeah. So these B-sides are not B-sides at all. They're actually pretty cool too. And uh, for me, especially company man would have just made the record if we had it already. We just didn't have it. The record was done. So um, we'll play it in order, but we might sneak in those B-sides towards the end. And, and, and then some... Uh quote unquote greatest hits afterwards or a set of some other tunes too. You're not going to play 40, 35, 40 minutes and be done for the night. That's correct. We would never do that. I don't want to do that. <laughs> uh, once everyone's in the building and everything's set up. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So we come back and do a set of a bunch of songs that a lot of people too, I mean, are still catching on to the band and caught onto the band with Feral Roots or, or whatever our, our later records. So a lot of people don't even know all those songs or what's going on. So we have to play the songs they know too. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned Feral Roots, because as we look uh, back, I certainly want to look forward to it. I love that album, and I imagine you're working on new music now, probably going to be next year at this point. We have a record almost in the can right now. Wow. We've, we've spent a lot of time. We're, we're pretty much done. It's just really difficult. Our uh, dear friend Dave Cobb, a longtime producer, is a busy man, and yeah. he's only gotten busier and harder to nail down. So with everything between... Um, all the protocols and COVID stuff and finding time with him. And now he's out on tour with Chris Stapleton where he plays acoustic guitar part-time. We're just looking for our window to jump back in and wrap it up. And I'm, I'm hoping we can do that in January. And one more session, we're going to have, we're going to put a bow on it and get, get that out to everybody. So when do you think it'll uh, start tasting music, maybe in the spring and then released in the summer, fall? What are you thinking? I think that's the hope. These words are not in stone, but, um, <laughs> Yeah, that's my that's my hope. I think we have a really great record kind of just just about there. So um, and we did it the same way. You know, I want to say because I know a lot of people that know our ethos. We have famously like gone in for 30 days and made a record and we did it really similarly. And only difference was that me and Jay spent more time writing back and forth because we were trapped at home with this uh, pandemic. But when we came to recording, we really didn't spend much more time than that still. We, we didn't share too much with the guys. So that meant when we went into a record, it kept things really off the cuff. So don't worry, everyone. You're still getting a, a normal, true-to-heart uh, Rival Sons record. Yeah, I was going to say, because that's the whole thing, right? You're trying to capture that lightning in a bottle as it happens. And, and it's interesting to go think of it like that. You're talking about pressure and time 10-plus years ago. Bam, 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 bam. And now you have all the time in the world, but still need to bring that that live, that instantaneous, that lightning in a bottle sound. Is there any sort of uh, mission statement for the new album or is it to just spend more time? Um, How do you mean mission statement? Uh, You know, we want to be more melodic this time around. I don't know. Ah, You know what? If you really, it's really easy to see how we're turning. You can see the big wheel turning from record to record. They sound different. They sound really different. That's why it's so weird to come back to pressure and time and go, whoa, we're in a really different headspace right now, <laughs> like where we're making the new record or with Feral Roots compared to pressure and time. Yikes, that's trippy. Like, how are we going to get these to translate as well as these other songs? You can really tell where we are in our trajectory. So like that, this record has moved along from Feral Roots. It's, I, I can't really say more melodic. I think um, we're always sharpening the sword. We're always trying to become better songwriters and always trying to be more melodic and always just not trying to necessarily reinvent the wheel, but just 
do something that we know is different and new and um, maintaining a level of quality with our songwriting as we work, you know? And I think this new record, it's got to feel like that. It feels like that right now. We've kind of gone from like pressure on time being very concise with the next record we made with Head Down being a much more broad record stylistically and musically. And then we kind of bounced back and forth, concise and kind of opened it up. And there was a real middle ground with Pearl Roots where it wasn't so concise. There was some big songs on that record, longer songs, wider. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like this record is a broader record. Okay. It's possibly our longest record and uh, biggest record. So I think this might be uh, slightly more majestic. This is the prog rock <laughs> record. No. <laughs> Remember how I said pressure and time wasn't the wall? Yeah. This yeah. might be the wall. <laughs> <laughs> you got a concept and everything all worked out. Story, movie line, everything? No, there I'm just is kidding. a little loose concept. There uh, is a little loose concept happening. If I don't want to say too much. I don't want to say too much. Interesting. So leave it at, I think this is a broader record, and I think people are going to enjoy it very much. Operation Mindcrime. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I have a funny Jeff Tate story. Ooh, I'd love to hear it. Go for Tate. it. I, don't, I hope this isn't too offensive, but we actually played with them on our first European tour with Judas Priest, believe it or not. We opened for Judas Priest, and, and um, Queensryche was on, I think, almost all those dates maybe, and it was us, them, and then Priest. Right. You know, we were really green and just like, just getting her going, but we were fascinated because, you know, everybody warms up to a gig. Like a lot of people, we'll hear them warming up. Mommy, mommy, mommy. Bah, 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 bah. You can hear people warming up in the halls and stuff. Right. So they were no different, you know. But you have like the classic Jeff Tate voice, which is super original. You can't miss Jeff Tate. So he's like warming up in the room next to us. And he's like, oh, oh yeah. That really wide vibrato. Uh-huh. So we were like, wow, you can't miss it. That's Jeff Tate warming up. Okay. But the crazy thing about that tour was I had never been on a tour, even heard of it. This dude warmed down. Oh. So he'd come off stage and hit right back into that same vibrato in the room. Like, okay, dude. Yeah, it just kind of blew our minds. Wow, Jeff Tate warms down. Yeah. Incredible. Never, never heard of that before. And you, <laughs> you would think just leave it on the stage, bro. Warm down on the stage if you if you need to. <laughs> You'd think, yeah. <laughs> Squeeze in one more song or something. Hey, man, there's there's no way I could not talk. Talking about touring mates, I mean, it, dude, it cannot not talk about you opening for Black Sabbath on their farewell tour and being hand-selected. And was there ever a moment where uh, you looked over and saw Tony Iommi watching you and, and you know, you, you butt your shorts a little bit or anything or missed a note or anything? I don't know if they ever got to really watch us because they're, like, flying in. I'm going to be honest. I don't know. Maybe they watched us, but we hung out with them a lot on tour. And there was plenty of times where I was just hanging out with Tony one-on-one, just me and him, and just very casually in his room. And people go, oh, did you ever have to, like, pinch yourself? Are we ever tripping out? And I was thinking... Yeah, every <laughs> single day, <laughs> every single day going, this is, I feel like my 14 year old self every day on this tour. I'm like in a time machine watching myself going, yes, good job, dude. That's amazing. <laughs> You're like, hold um, it together. Hold it together. Don't do anything dumb. Yeah. And I will say, Tony listened. Um, if I never caught him watching and then they, we did see them watching. Actually, there was actually a few cases we could watch them watching i never watch anything but to be honest when i'm on stage i never see anyone 
you know, my girl will be there, my kids. And I'm like, did you see us in the crowd? We were looking at you the whole time. And I, <laughs> I don't see anybody. I see everyone. And by that, I mean, I'm just really into the show. Everybody does it different on stage. Dave, our bass player, will see everybody and see everything. He's watching the crowd. Me, I'm a little more enveloped into the show. I don't, I don't see anybody. So I, I heard that they had watched the show several times, but I did spend a lot of time with Tony on that tour. And he, every time, wanted to tell me how great my tone was. I swear it. Wow. And tell me how great we were and how perfect the show was and how, like, so many complimentary things that I had to, like, Tony, no, please. <laughs> You're killing me, dude. And he was just so phenomenal just every night. Every night. I mean, I had so many nights where I was literally watching him right, right at his feet, like right off the stage, watching him work so I could really see his hands working and see, feel his energy as he did it. And it just, it was like, you know, pretty borderline, just emotional to watch for me. Like, I can't believe it. He just is not phoning it in. He does not phone it in. He never phoned it in one time in 13 months. And he could, he could, he could literally just play the riff and just hack through the solos and chop through them, and nobody would care. Everyone would think he's the greatest, and they wouldn't know, you know? But I'm telling you, as a guitar player, right next to him watching for 13 months, it was unbelievable. The amount of energy and precision and care he put into every note every night, it, it brought a tear to my eye. And I'm not kidding. It just felt like I can't believe it. It gave me hope that if I can keep going, maybe I'll keep that kind of dedication. Maybe it won't go away. Maybe I'll have the same fervor and like excitement to play those riffs and solos like, like he's doing. So it was mind-blowing. Yeah, man, get in, I'm getting goosebumps there in you talk about, you know, Iomi and just crazy, crazy that what he does, especially with the injury that he had and the, like having to wear the plastic fingertips. Did you get into that at all with him? Did you see those? That's that's the part that tricked never me out about his playing. <laughs> I never touched on it with him, dude. I know that's what everybody wants to talk about. I just avoided it and didn't. I never really even thought too much about it because uh, it felt so natural and just cool whenever we were hanging out so i never really sat around and went you know that thing everyone asked you about i want to know too i kind of read about it all already and just moved on and it was we talked about other normal stuff did you ever get to strap one of his guitars on do you ever strum one of his uh no i i know people are gonna go how could you not do that i i didn't do it i got to check out all of his gear very intimately and closely and see everything he's doing he has a great guitar tech Mike and I spent time with Mike and checked everything out and it was fun and it was great to peek behind the curtain and I definitely touched some of the guitars but I never strapped them on and played them <laughs> it's always like before a show and it's like with my guitars unless I'm there my my tech's not letting anyone really touch anything so unless Tony was with me I wouldn't go let me play that guitar because I never asked because that's what how I would do it you know you get right. a look you right. can even touch. We are not going to put it on and beat around on the guitar right now. Yeah, we're that getting makes it sense. ready for the show. Yeah. <laughs> and, and plus, it would have been all backwards for you since he's a lefty, right? Everything would have been upside down for you. Messing around. It wouldn't make any sense. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Last thing I got to hit you with, Scott, since we're having some fun talking guitar and and talking about riff masters and stuff, we're at old school radio station. We we still celebrate it every night at 10 o'clock. We do mandatory Metallica. So I wanted to talk a little Metallica with you and kind of curious, did you get a little bit, glean a little bit more in your influential years off of Hammett or Hetfield? Who who did you uh, learn or look up to a little bit more growing up, maybe writing and learning guitar? I love me some Metallica, dude. Are you kidding me? 
I definitely did Metallica growing up. I'm a Metallica guy all the way. To this point, I'm, I think even young, I was always into both of them, but Hetfield's right hand is pretty uh, unbelievable. So that rhythm guitar to me was always really the money in that band. Hammond is great. He's, he is fantastic. And I have numerous Metallica books. I sat with, with uh, Master and, and Justice and like you know, those records and, and Ride the Lightning. I have all those books and sat with them and played everything. But um, I'm, I'm going to go with uh, James, man. Not to make us feel old, but the Black Album is now 30 years old. Insane. 30 years That's old weird. and 30 albums sold. 30 million albums sold. That's weird. Yeah, I heard some crazy interview with um, Jason, and they said the money that he makes, they, they'd ask him about the money he makes on the Black Album. Like, oh, are you just like wealthy just from that alone? And he said, oh, I think he said something to the degree of I stopped even really keeping that money a long time ago that I mostly donate the money from the Black Album. Like, he's become so wealthy just from that album even alone from their career that the money that comes in from that he is constantly donating that's how crazy that record is it's a monolith of a of an album how did you feel when that album came out being a guy that you had the tab books for ride the lightning and master of puppets and injustice were, were you kind of taken back when you first heard that new rock sound you know going from the the thrash metal band to the rock and roll band um you know what yeah it was a little bit but i wasn't so that I was a hater. I was eclectic as a kid, so I was not like just a thrash kid. So I think the people that were just thrash and metal probably went, this is BS. This isn't a real thrash record. They, they sold out. I wasn't there really. I liked a lot of different type of music and I thought, wow, this record sounds good. Like sound-wise, this record destroys. This is the best sounding record sonically, you know? Of course, in retrospect, we can look back on those early records and go, well, there's a particular sound that just feels like dirtier and like something, <laughs> like something special from the old records. Right. But that's what I thought when that record came out. This is clean. Like, this sounds big. And I was already a, already a guitar player and, and writing songs, and that's really what I thought. I thought, wow, these guys are really honing in on their craft. They're like playing amazing james sounds like a whole different singer totally like honing in on his craft that's what i thought did it feel like old metallica no but it's not like it didn't have any muscle there was plenty of muscle all over that record you know yeah i mean even sad but true even though it's slow there's so much grit behind totally. that tune you know i mean sandman yeah. it's a tough riff it's muscle it's awesome. I was more kind of rooting for them when it came out. More proud of them for that record and like, good job, guys. Is it the record I put on continuously now? No. It was so popular. It's like, you know, it's like that's what happens. You don't, it's harder to put those records on that we hear nonstop, you know? Maybe like a Zep head, maybe four is the record they put on the least because we've just heard all, everything on that record the most. Right. You know what I mean? Right, totally. Totally. Scott, just to wrap it up, pick a uh, pick a Metallica tune for us to play on Mandatory Metallica. Any any tune you want. Oh, man. Can I go backwards? Anything you want, bro. Let's go with, you know what? Let's go with what you picked. Let's go with the little Sad But True. Why not? Sad But True. Beautiful. We'll rock that. Scott, I appreciate all the time. Awesome, dude. See you out. Thanks much. 
Dude, you absolutely rock. Thank you so much for checking out the entire interview. Now just hit subscribe. Subscribe to the podcast, Radioactive Mike Z. My interviews in their entirety, available on all the major platforms. Tune in, Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud, whatever you're listening to right now. Just hit the subscribe button. Make sure to give me a follow on the socials as well. I'll follow you back at MikeZ967. And bro, don't miss the radio show. Now 10 p.m to midnight on 96.7 KCAL Rocks in the Southern California Inland Empire area, Riverside, San Bernardino County. Always streaming on live at kcalfm.com. You, my friend, absolutely rock.